0: My friends, we are continuing our series um, titled Ask Me Anything on responding to the questions of the people of the church. And so uh, part of the point of the series is to remind each of us that our questions matter, um, that the point of worship is not just to passively receive information from someone standing in front of you, um, but to seek our God and worship our God. And, and oftentimes God gives us questions and God gives us, um, you know, what feels like challenges to our faith in order to grow our faith, in order to grow closer to him. And so we're going to continue. Um, Vicki, are you ready? Yes, we're, we're ready. Okay. How was John the Baptist able to baptize people before Jesus had died for our sins? Okay, great. Good question. Um, the main aspect, and remember when someone says good question, that means they don't know what they're about to say. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, the key with John the Baptist is his baptism was different than Jesus's. And so baptism was not, um, was not first happened, occurred with John the Baptist before anything else. And so baptizo just means to submerge in Greek. And so there was a practice for, for Jewish converts that had to do with submersion. And it had to do with there was a special pool that had to be built, um, usually close to the synagogue, it had to be like within a hundred feet. And there's in many in the in the uh, Far East or the Near East, and in a lot of parts of Europe, there's still these ancient um, Jewish baths that you can find. There's a famous one in Venice and other places in the Jewish section, and so to go in. But this, it wasn't it wasn't a major part of the practice because most Jews were not um, converts, and so it was just a special thing that if you were going to convert to Judaism. First, you had to be, if you were a man, you had to be circumcised, no matter what age you were. And then you had to go through this ceremonial bathing. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't new birth, like the, all the Christian connections were there. What John the Baptist did was he took what was this pool in the back of um, some synagogues or some areas, and he took it to the river. He took the river that was at the heart of the Promised Land, the Jordan River, that went right, slipped right down the middle of the Promised Land. And so he connected this call to repentance to uh, the sacrifice of, God, of the Hebrew people in Egypt and the miracle of God pulling the people out of Egypt and pulling them out of slavery through the waters of the Red Sea. He harkens back to this moment right after, uh, right after Elijah, the prophet, goes as a chariot, picks him up and takes him to heaven. And, the, and Elisha doesn't know if he's going to have the power of the prophecy and the power of the prophet but he's able to use the staff of Elijah to separate the Jordan River and this power of the river. And so John the Baptist is basically calling the people out. He's the man crying out in the middle of the woods. He has camel hair. He eats locusts. He looks kind of like, um, in Hebrews description of, of people of faith who, wore, who didn't look like everybody else. He didn't shave. That's why it was called a Nazarene. So he, like, I at least trimmed my beard. His beard was probably like, right about here, long hair, um, I mean, like a lot of neck beard coming out and he was calling the people to repent, to change their lives. And so what Jesus does, and what John the Baptist does through him is, is John the Baptist enters, enters Jesus another time into the covenant into the promise um, and his claim, this reminder that Jesus is not just set up completely set apart but submits. To, to humanity, to its fullest, and takes the repentance. But the baptism that Jesus promises and offers to us, not only is this repentance, is this forgiveness of our sins, but also sets us on a path towards God. Gives us new birth. The new birth is the, is the thing that Jesus institutes that is not a part of, um, the, of John the Baptist or previous ideas of baptism. It's this understanding that we are newly created when we are baptized. We are not the same. We are, as I, as I mentioned last week, we are, we are part of, we're pilgrim people of a different country. We are pilgrim people of heaven in this land through baptism, through our interests. We're citizens of heaven. And so that's, like, that's how John the, John the Baptist didn't baptize in the same way that I would baptize someone here in this church today. But it was in part, and it showed to the possibility of the baptism that Jesus would institute and share with all of us. Great more about baptism here. Okay. After John the Baptist, Baptist baptizes Jesus and Jesus sees the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, is that the first time the Holy Spirit comes to man in the Bible? If not, what does this signify? Okay. Good question. <laughs> good question. <laughs> That's a good question. Um yeah. So, spirit is one of those is one of those words in English um, and, it, like, in most languages have a word for spirit, and it mean, often means a lot of things. En Francais in French, esprit, esprit can mean spirit. It can also mean mind. Um, it can also, it, it has a lot of different meanings. Spirit in English often has a lot of meanings. Many times, Holy Spirit, if you look in the King James, it's translated as Holy Ghost. Um, not that it's like Casper the Friendly Ghost kind of ghost, but it's just that kind of way. In Hebrew the word is ruach. And ruach can also be breath. And so in Genesis, I think Genesis 1-2, um, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the breath of God moved across the waters. And that's the ruach of God. And that's the, the idea of the Spirit. And so the Spirit is not something that's created with, with the baptism of Jesus, but a presence and an understanding throughout all of the Scriptures. And in the same much of the, in many ways, as what happens with concepts in the Old Testament, they receive their fullest understanding in the New, in the life of Jesus. And so we understand more clearly what the Spirit is through the life of Jesus, through the Spirit's coming and the connection from the Father to the Son. And that's like, the Trinity is a, super, you know, is a very difficult concept. Anytime you ever think you figured it out, you are deceiving yourselves. Uh, but one of the most basic understandings is to see the Trinity as the, God the Father, God the Son, and the relation, the connection, the love between the Father and the Son. And we see that at the baptism. We see the Father beyond sending the Spirit to Jesus and the, their connection between them. And the amazing thing about the Trinity, about that moment in baptism, about the fullness of the Spirit, is that we are able to enter into that relationship. We are able to enter into the life of God, because God is not just really far away from us. God was made flesh, and the Spirit was brought here so that we ourselves, each of us, and each of the people we know in our lives and in this world, can be drawn to God. Okay, crowd favorite. Are right, you ready? I'm ready. Does the Methodist Church teach heaven and hell and where do we go when we die? Okay. Oh. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> um, yes. The, I mean, the answer is yes. and so, But it's not, of course, it's not as simple as that. Uh, that they are in the founding kind of documents or do- doctrines of the United Methodist Church, which are found in one of the most boring books in the history of the world called the Book of Discipline. Mm-hmm. Of the United Methodist Church. If you ever feel like falling asleep, I'll give you a copy. If you're having trouble with insomnia, it's the best insomnia here. It's better than Tylenol PM. Um, but in it is what's called the Articles of Religion. And the Articles of Religion are this editing that John Wesley does of the Church of England 39 articles. So we get like, we have 14 left off, which is good for us. But um, included in that looks at kind of our final life with God. So part of the articles are like, The Trinity, who is Jesus, sin, what is in the Bible, and what is our future with God? And the the classic Christian understanding is to believe in the resurrection of the body and the new creation in God. And looking at the end of Revelation, there will be new heavens and a new earth. And the the old heaven, the old will pass away. And there will be no more crying or weeping nor gnashing of teeth. And so we have. A picture, a scriptural picture that's clear of the blast in the things. And then we have the present. We have Jesus talking about, um, you know, especially in Matthew 25, in the famous separation of the goats and the sheep. On, on my right will be the sheep, and on my left will be the goats. And on my right, it will be those who, um, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat, and when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. But on my left, most preachers don't read the, the left part. Um, on my left, it will be the goats, and it will be those who didn't give me something to drink, and didn't give me something to drink, those who did not clothe me, and they will go to the pits of um, fire, which is not, not the nice Jesus we like to imagine, but that is, is in that passage, and there's a clarity <coughs> there. And what, what hell means, hell itself is a word, is, comes from a pagan, You know, this is, this is complicated, but the point is that there's not a simple way to look at it. And our faith is not... In these kind of like simple dogmatics that okay, I, I believe in God, therefore I go to heaven, I don't believe in God, therefore I go to hell um, that there is more because life is more complicated than that and and relationships are more complicated than that hell comes from a pagan word for the afterlife because it's English was originally a pagan language, it's like Saxon with like Normans and fighting around and, and Vikings, and that's the, the roots of our language Hades, the Greek root for just a place where people go after they die. What that looks like is less clear. But um, in the early service, I was asked a, a question about the Apostles' Creed. And there's, a, there's a clause in the Apostles' Creed that we sometimes say or sometimes don't say that he descended to the dead. And what that means, and sometimes we don't say it because Wesley cut it out because he didn't like it. But I, I really like it and would like to always say it because the importance of that is, is there's a passage in First in Peter of Jesus going to preach to those who are imprisoned. <coughs> And the idea that the love of God and the salvation of Jesus Christ is not just for everybody who dies after 33 AD. Um, everybody, it's not that this idea, okay, well, sorry, you died two days before the crucifixion, therefore you're in eternal suffering. Um, sorry, bad luck. But that God offers life no matter where on the time spectrum can it be. And the promise of God is offered to all. I was, when I was in seminary, um, and I was kind of more cantankerous, than I am today. One time I was sitting in the seminary hallway and I would ask people as they walked by, do you believe in hell? And you know, this is, I went to North Duke in North Carolina and some kind of very educated crowd and not used to really wanting to nuance answers as I have been trying to today. Don't like these stark ones. And a lot of people would say, uh, uh, yes, uh, uh no, and just kind of move on. But one of my professors response was my favorite response. And he said, uh, I asked him, do you believe in hell? And he said, um, not like I believe in God. And that the belief in hell is not the center of our faith. The belief in heaven is not the center of our faith. The center of our faith is, is our the Triune God. Is, is the God revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And our, the point of faith and following God is not the kind of like, what, what happens at the end. I've often um, heard it described as like lifeboat theology, the, the idea that you want to get on the lifeboat, so you want to believe the right thing, so you get the ticket for the lifeboat, and then you get out. But faith and new life begins now. New life in God is not about something you've got to worry about in the future, and you can do whatever you want until then, but you have the opportunity to love now. And so the Methodist Church believes in the Bible, It believes that there is a place for God, that those who have passed before us are going to be present with God in a way that we don't even understand, that they will be beyond time. Those of us who, those whom we love, who love God are present in a way that we can't comprehend beyond time are able to see our present, our future, our past in clarity, but are more interested in being present with God because they will see God as God truly is. Hell and what happens in damnation those ideas. There is an understanding of, of justice in that, of the idea that those who, those who persecute, those who hurt and cause pain in this world will have their just deserts. But that does not mean that they are entirely beyond God's love. and that our faith should be in the, God, the love of God. Not in this kind of juridical, um, if you pass, you know if you did you do this you, do this, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, but where is your heart? Is your heart towards the love of God? For those who have never been in, um, connected. To to Christ or to faith, where is their heart? Because Christ is present in those cultures and those religions. Where is your heart? Is your heart of love? How open are you to the love of God? And that's that's the importance for the for the Methodist Church for for any church, in my my estimation. And so that's that's the kind of that's the heart of how we can understand it. The short answer of heaven is the presence of God. Heaven is not this kind of like cloudy cloudscape. That's that's pagan heaven. That's Valhalla. That's Olympus. And those images influenced a lot of the, image, the cultural images. Heaven is the presence of God, is being with the God who is loved, is being surrounded. We see it in Isaiah 25 of this giant feast of, of only good foods, of like, and well wine, and, and joyous praises. We see it in Revelation 22 of the choir singing eternally, Holy, 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 are you Lord God Almighty? And the power of that. And I think one one more thing on this. One of my friends once said that if you don't want to be with God now, why do you think you will want to be with God for all eternity? And I think that it puts a conviction about how we respond to our faith now. Like, I want to be with God for all eternity, but I want to be with God now. And how can I be with God more now? What are the things we can do? This is in the Methodist, Methodist Church we call the means of grace, the works of piety, and the works of mercy. Those are the ways to be with God now, to read our scriptures, to ask questions, to think through our faith, to pray corporately and personally, but also to, to serve our neighbor, to feed those who are hungry, to take care of others in our lives, to live a life um, so that we are growing closer to God. Okay. I think I can do one more. Is there a quick one? Uh, <laughs> yes, I think this one's, Well, I mean, okay. yes, uh, I think this one's a little quicker than the other. What does Paul mean when he speaks about the body of Christ? Oh, that is, is the well, opposite. Well, quicker than he. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But, okay. um, there's there's two really important parts for this, and so in First Corinthians twelve and the Book of Ephesians. But um, the body, basically, um, man. This is a really good question. <laughs> I thought about, like, if I ever did a PhD, it would be about this, really, um, and about the difference between the singular body of Christ and the crucified body of Christ and the collectivity of the church and how we are connected in that way um, and the power of that. But, that's, but what Paul means by that is a body is full of many parts. Um, and we need to see the church as full of many parts. And just like with, and this is he goes in 1 Corinthians 12, a really beautiful passage you can't tell the hand to be a foot or the eye to be an ear. And so, when we are trying to be church together, what God calls us to be together, we cannot look for uniformity. The human instinct is to look to uniformity. Efficiency is to look to uniformity. This is what, you know, Henry Ford's great innovation was, let's let's make make every every part the same so it doesn't need a craftsman to make a car. And that's what a lot of, you know, a lot of businesses, you got your wonderful HR departments that are trying to make everybody act and behave in the same way. You got all your your fitness tracking devices for your insurance to try and make you act like have a good, the health the same way. But the body of Christ is like, no, God offers love to all. And we need, we need a diversity of gifts and practices to truly be children of God together, as well as we need each other. And I think at its root, that's what, that's what we should take from it, is that we can't be the body of Christ on our own. If you find a finger on the side of the road, you don't find a body, you find a finger. And right? Like, it's kind of gruesome, but I think that's a really important point to realize. And so if we're trying to be the finger of the body of Christ by ourselves, we are not that. We need each other. And that takes, you know, it takes time with each other. It takes talking to people. It takes worship on Sunday morning, but it also takes the other practices of the church. It, it means taking time for each other. And in this world that sucks up our time dry, that can be a challenge. There's an intentionality to being the body of Christ. You think about in the early church, and the, the church meeting in the catacombs, where they were being persecuted. They needed each other. They were going to die without each other. Different periods of the church, you see this happening, and you see this vibrancy of that. And we're at a point in an age where so many of us are taught, you don't need anybody. You don't need anybody else in your life. Maybe pick two BFFs, and you're cool. Um, And then all you need is more stuff. And just get some stuff, and that can replace people. And the church tells us that we need each other, both all those who are here now, but also, we are not complete. Our body is not complete. There are others in our community and in our world whom we need to be a part of this worshiping community. And that is a conviction for us. I think Paul is getting connected to this. Because the amazing thing, 1 Corinthians 12, I'll say that again, 1 Corinthians 12, right after that is 1 Corinthians 13, which is is one of the most famous passages in Scripture, one of the most beautiful. It's been read so often at weddings and sermons, but it it still retains its power. If you have, if you preach like apostles and you can prophesy like no one else before, but have not love, you are clinging gong or clashing symbol. If we think we are the church and we don't have love, we are not the church. If we think we are awesome and we have all that we have this great worship service and we have this great choir and we have all these great things we've done and this great history and we have not love, we are like dust. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not boast in itself. And that is, I mean, I I encourage you to even if you don't want to read twelve, just to read thirteen again. It's one of the shortest chapters in the Bible. And there's so, so much rich power for that. And and to realize that the love described there is not just the love between a man and a woman or between a couple being married. It's not just the love of a mother and child. This is the love of Jesus on the cross. And this is what is offered to us. Each of us have this opportunity and power for love, but it takes a step of faith. It takes a step towards others in our life. It takes time. It takes forgiveness. And that's what it means to be the church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. For the questions that were asked and the new questions that they've inspired. Help us, O Lord, to remember that you are a God of truth. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And when we seek truth, we seek you. Give us confidence to seek you more. In Christ's holy and blessed name. Amen.